This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Hello out there in Michigan radio land. We are very pleased to have a special guest here at the top of the show. Uh, He is second term, just begun, second term, Republican Representative James Lauer, a Republican of Cedar Lake. Uh, He's maybe, uh, he can correct me about this, maybe he's had his 30th birthday at this point, chairs the local government committee in the House, at least he did the last term. We don't know about going forward. Uh, he's been a member of the communications and technology, energy policy, and tax policy committees. Uh, he has worked as executive director for a small national consulting firm and as a legislative assistant in both the state house and Senate. Uh, he began his career interning for then representative Brian Kelly, who later became Lieutenant governor, as I think everybody knows. And he also worked on Brian Kelly's 2010 Senate primary campaign before Brian Kelly went on to become lieutenant governor. Uh, Representative Lauer served as the Edmore village manager, and he was a member of the Ionia County Board of Commissioners, where he served as vice chair. Uh, He's also been a member of the Montcalm Economic Alliance and the Knights of Columbus, and I believe his 70th district includes uh, a major portion of, maybe it includes all of uh, Montcalm County and uh, a northern portion of adjacent Gratiot County. Uh, Representative Lauer, welcome to the Political Insider. Glad to have you with us. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And no, I haven't had my 30th birthday yet. That'll be in April. (laughs) Okay. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Let me ask you, is your district, as I've described, are you like all of Montcalm County? Absolutely, yep. I have all of Montcalm County, and as you said, the northern and probably the more populated uh, part of Gratiot County. I have the cities of Alma and St. Louis and the townships uh, surrounding them. Right. Well, now I rattled off a whole bunch of impressive uh, facts and figures from your background before you got in the legislature and what you're doing or have been doing in the legislature up to this time, but what I really have got you on the show for is to talk about your petition reform legislation that you got passed in the lame duck session of the legislature last month and sent to governor Snyder. And despite a lot of pushback from uh, various entities and groups out there who claimed that this was uh, somehow anti-democratic with a small D and that it was an impingement upon uh, the ability of petitioners to gather petition signatures. The governor signed it. And as I think we all know, he vetoed a lot of bills, uh, 42 bills altogether on his way out the door uh, in December as governor, but he signed this one. And I'd like you to describe in your own words, what was this bill? What was the genesis for it? Why did you introduce it? Uh, And what is in it and why is it a good piece of public policy? 
Absolutely. So what got me interested in the topic was uh, really this year serving as, as state representative for my area, talking with voters during my own reelect. What I found out was many of them uh, would ask me quite often what the ballot uh, proposals did, the ones that ended up being on the ballot, the props one through three. And they also had no idea that in large measure, most of those were at least the advertising portion and in many cases the signature collecting portion of the campaigns were funded by out-of-state millionaires and billionaires. So there's this perception with these uh, campaigns that it's sort of a grassroots, organic effort. And that's not to say there weren't people involved that were volunteering for these campaigns and wholeheartedly believed in them and were doing them because they thought that they were the right thing for the state of Michigan. That definitely happened. But a large part of the campaign was people being paid by out-of-state millionaires and billionaires uh, to put these things on the ballot. And in a lot of cases, they used very dishonest uh, tactics to collect the signatures. They just straight up lie to the voters about what the petition did. And there was nothing in state law that made that uh, illegal. In fact, the signatures uh, counted no matter what, whether they were uh, you know, gained through fraudulent means and whether people were paid to, to sign the petition. So and another part, part of it was you didn't really get a lot of signatures. The further north you went, the less likely you were to encounter somebody who was pushing one of these campaigns because you could easily get all of the signatures in the metro Detroit area. And there were, for Prop 2, I think, particularly maybe even Prop 1, there were some people collecting signatures up in, up in my area, but not really that many compared to southeast Michigan. So I had actually written a an op-ed on this issue for some of my local media and talked about it with voters, and people thought that there definitely needed to be more transparency and more accountability when it came to this issue. So that's what I put together in the bill. So in a nutshell, my bill does a few things. One, it requires that no more than 15% of the signatures you're collecting come from one congressional district, meaning so if you're in the fourth, which I live in, you can't get any more than 15% of your uh, signatures from the fourth congressional district. If you reach that cap, then you have to move on to a different congressional district for uh, collecting signatures. It also requires a factual 100-word summary be placed at the top of each petition uh, that you're handing out, and it also requires the people circulating them to identify whether they're being paid by you know, out-of-state special interest groups or whomever they're being paid for, um, or if they're a volunteer. That's, those are the basics of it. There's some other things in there, too, that we can get into if you like. But the, so basically, it adds a lot of accountability, and it adds a lot more transparency to the uh, petition-gathering process. In other words, up until this time, uh, somebody could sit down there, let's say in the heart of Detroit, and they could gather all the petition signatures they needed right there in the city of Detroit. They would never even have to move out into uh, Western Wayne County or let alone Oakland County or Macomb or anywhere else in the state. They could just get them all down there. You're saying, uh, wait a second here, let's uh, distribute the effort here, uh, no more than 15% in any one congressional district. And by the way, Michigan has 14 congressional districts. So in other words, you don't necessarily have to get them from all congressional districts. Frankly, as according to my math, you could get, uh, like seven congressional districts, just seven districts. You could probably get 15% in seven congressional districts. Uh, no more than that, and you could meet your threshold, right? That's right. Yep. Now, I'd prefer that we got them from, you know, all 14, but the bill, you know, we, we didn't want to make it too hard or anything like that, so it just requires uh, 
your math is correct. You you could theoretically get them all from uh, seven congre- congressional districts. And you know, when I was working in the state capitol, and I heard a lot of, of people saying that these petitions represented the will of the voters, particularly when you talked about the minimum wage and the um, paid sick time ones that we took took a look at. And I don't necessarily agree with that. If you're not getting a more uh, diverse uh, group of signatures on it, if you're just in one part of the state. It's difficult to argue that the, you know the people signing them uh, represent the entire state of Michigan because they clearly don't. So I think this helps with that. I think it adds more credibility to that argument when you're putting these things on the ballot. Well, uh, when you talk also in in the um, new public act that there be some indication to I guess potential signers of the petitions as to whether the circulator in front of the petition signer is a paid circulator or a volunteer, how is that really demonstrated to the person signing a petition? I mean, maybe there's something on the petition itself that says that, that this person is paid. I don't know. but That's the way it works. So the, the way the bill works is it's on the petition itself prominently. It has to be very largely printed on the petition itself that the person circulating is a paid circulator or a volunteer. So that's the way we've, we've done it under the bill. Well, so are there some petitions that would be printed that would, would say that the person is paid or not? Uh, and others yeah. that would say they, they're not paid or these are volunteers? That's right. That's exactly right. So if you're a volunteer, you'd have a volunteer one. And if you were a paid circulator, you'd have the uh, paid version. I got it. Okay, we'll be back in a minute with a few more details about this very important piece of reform legislation passed by Representative James Lauer and signed by Governor Snyder. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back with our special guest, Representative James Lauer, who sponsored a very important uh, piece of reform legislation involving petition gathering. Uh, Signatures gathered on petitions for ballot proposals around the state uh, signed into law by Governor Snyder on his way out the door in late December as governor. Uh, And Representative Lauer did a great job explaining what's in the bill, but there were some other things in the bill that he hasn't even mentioned yet, which he said we can discuss later. Well, now is later. So what else is in this bill, Representative Lauer? So a couple really important things. One, one of them is we've fixed a specific date, and it's 100 days prior to the election that you want um, the initiative on the ballot. So let's say you've gotten all of your signatures. It requires you to turn it turn it in no later than 100 days uh, prior to the Secretary of State. So that way they can go through the process of vetting the signatures and uh, verifying that you've, you've indeed collected enough and You've, you've met the uh, proportional uh, requirements. So that's that's an important change, too, and it's going to allow uh, voters more time to consider uh, these proposals as well, because this last term we had a few that were turned in relatively late in the process, and it, it really created a lot of uh, scrambling for the Secretary of State to go through and, and verify the signatures, and, and then once they were uh, put on the ballot, very little time for voters to consider those and, and get information. So 100 days out is, is what we've landed on there. I think that's a really important 
reform too. And then the 100-word statement I mentioned at the beginning, it allows people uh, doing petition drives to run that by the board of canvassers on the front end instead of the back end. So if they want to do it on the front end and get it approved, they can go out and collect signatures and be 100% confident that when they turn them in, that statement's not going to be found to be uh, inaccurate or, or not factual. So it allows them, and they don't have to do it on the front end. That's completely up to the, the people running these campaigns. But if they want to do it on the front end, I think they should, they can get it approved by the board of canvassers. And then when they're out collecting signatures, uh, the voters that are signing them will not only um, have a factual statement to look at, but that's very likely what would appear on the ballot at that point as well. So that's the way I would do it. We don't require them to do it that way. If they want to start collecting and just hope that their 100-word summary is, is correct, um, they could do that. I, I wouldn't advise it, though. Well, doesn't the petition itself include a 100-word summary uh, there that the petition signer could read before he or she decides to sign the petition? Right. And this allows them to get that approved by the Board of Canvassers prior to collecting signatures right. if they so choose. Well, yep. uh, but in other words, uh, you know, a lot of people, when they're stopped by uh, circulators, they kind of look twice at the circulator and they say, well, what's this about? And really, all the circulator would have to do is, well, read these 100 words. That'll tell you right there, right? It's, I mean, it wouldn't be. Yep. It, would. Yep, it would. And that, and the nice thing about that, too, is that it makes it, it has something that they can read. And then also in the bill, it creates a misdemeanor for, you know, lying to voters when you're collecting them. And, you know, how would you know? Well, we're going to have a hundred word statement. That is what the petition does. And if you're saying something other than that, that's not factual or is misleading, then then you could get dinged on that. Well, now, how would you be able to enforce that, though? I mean, what if the circulator... Very difficult. That'd yeah. be very difficult to enforce. But, you know, it's uh, it's our attempt at adding, you know, some accountability there. But you're right. That part of it would be tough to enforce. That's why we went with the hundred word uh, summary. We think that that's a good way to go at it and make sure that the voters at least have access to information about what the petition actually does. Yeah, one thing that was really interesting about your effort, to me at least, was the description in the news media during most of December last month uh, seemed to be along the lines of this was just one of a number of bills that majority Republicans in the legislature were pushing that was an effort to kind of undercut Democrats or uh, people who were espousing Democrat-favored uh, initiatives or referenda or constitutional amendments out in the population. So this was an effort to really hamstring uh, petition gatherers, and it was just a kind of sleazy, cheap, backdoor, lame-duck way to get this legislation enacted. And surprisingly, to me at least, I mean, there were a number of people who came out publicly, including Bill Rustam, who was a chief policy advisor for Governor Snyder during his first term, uh, who urged the governor publicly to veto this legislation. And frankly, you know, the way it was being described in the news media, I thought there was a very good chance that this thing would be vetoed. But the governor signed it. And I'm just kind of wondering, what was your reaction during all this time uh, to the debate going on in the news media and to whether the governor would sign it? I mean, were you kind of pleasantly surprised when he signed it, or did you expect him to sign it? Uh, what did you think? Uh, no, I expected him to sign it. You know, with, with any of the bills I do, this one in particular, um, I have a good, I had a good relationship with the Snyder administration. We'd worked together on a lot of projects over the term. There was this one, my property tax assessing reform, um, some reforms to pension and OPEB liability. So I, good relationship with the administration. And, and like any bill I, I do, we included them in the 
process, and they knew what the bill did, and they they had a lot of input on on the final product that went to his desk. And I I fully expected um, a signature on it. I mean, the governor doesn't make guarantees; it's just not the way uh, he operated. But my expectation was that that it would be signed because we had worked with them on it, and he viewed it the way I've described it, which is it's just kind of a common sense, uh, good government reform. You know, a lot of the stuff that was being said about it, frankly, I think they were trying to lump it in with some other things that were going on. And in my opinion, there wasn't really a good argument to be made against the bill. And so when that's the case, you argue process and you argue a lot of smoke and mirrors type stuff that just wasn't true. And, you know, the governor has always been good at seeing through that. And, I, you know, I appreciated him signing it. When we look at all 50 states, it's not as though this legislation was a one-off, like no state has ever done anything like what your bill did. I mean, there are other states that have statutes already in place on petition gathering with language somewhat similar to yours right now, right? That's absolutely right. You know, Michigan is in the minority of states that allows um, these types of initiatives at all. And I think it's good that we do, but there's only 24 states that allow any type of uh, citizen referendum or constitutional amendment or uh, citizen-initiated law process. There's only 24. And out of that number, um, four other states are now are, will be the fifth have these types of uh, policies, or it's either in their constitution or they've done a bill to get it done. And, and even some of our neighbors, I believe Ohio has something like this. And I want to double check, but I believe Minnesota and then Florida and, and Missouri and, and some others. So, we're, and even in our own state, when you if you're running for governor or you're running for United States Senate, you're required to get signatures from uh, a variety of congressional districts to, to have your name placed on the ballot. So we're not in any way in uncharted territory for our own state or for other states even. Well, now let's say that you're in the fourth congressional district. That's uh, where you say you live and your constituency is. Let's say there was a petition drive um, statewide to get something on the ballot and there were a lot of eager beaver uh, circulators in the fourth congressional district and they go out and they get all their signatures collected. And let's say when everything is said and done, it turns out they've got too many, uh, over 15%. Are those discounted? Extra uh, signatures over 15%? So just like now, you know how there's a minimum number you need, but you can turn in more than the minimum in case some of the signatures that you've collected end up not being valid because it wasn't a registered voter or something like that? Right. So similar to that, you can turn in all the ones you've collected, but um, only 15% would end up counting, you know, towards the overall uh, number that you need. So we're going to let we allow them to turn them in just like I think you can basically turn in the double the number. So if you needed 400,000, you can turn in a lot more than that. And you only count the, you know, the minimum number. So that's that's the way it would work. Uh, I got it. I got it. Listen, I, I would love to keep talking on this. There's so much more to say. But honestly, we are out of time. But I want to thank you, Representative Jim Lauer, for appearing on this show and explaining this important new reform bill that you got passed. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are continuing uh, this week's episode uh, with another special guest here. We have got Representative Dare Rendon. Uh, she is a Republican from Lake City. Uh, she was reelected to her second term uh, this past November. Uh, she was first elected, obviously, November 2016 to succeed her husband, Representative Bruce Rendon. 
Uh, Dare Rendon is the founder and operator of Dragon Payment Systems in Lake City. Uh, she's also served as the chairperson of the Michigan Home Builders Associate Council and as president of the Michigan Association of Collection Agencies. Uh, I'm asking uh, Representative Rendon, and by the way, she represents a five-county area, the 103rd House District in northern Lower Peninsula, Michigan, which includes, if I'm not mistaken, Kalkaska and Crawford counties and Misaki County, Roscommon and Ogemaw counties, five counties. Representative Rendon, thank you for being our guest today. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm pretty excited about this. Yeah, obviously this is uh, big, and we're going to talk about it, and it's somewhat controversial uh, description, I guess, for some people. Baby box. Baby box legislation. You and uh, Representative Bronna Colley, who is your Republican colleague from Lenaway County, you co-sponsored a bill uh, which would allow for uh, kind of infant security devices, if you want to call them that, or baby boxes, uh, an expansion of what I think is called safe haven laws, but you can explain all that. Uh, and amazingly, uh, to a lot of people, Governor Snyder vetoed it on his way out the door as governor uh, ending uh, last year, uh, New Year's Eve. And um, I'm, you know, somewhat confounded by what Governor Snyder decided to do with it and wondering whether you and uh, Bronna Colley uh, plan to reintroduce it. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I want to ask you right off the bat, how did you come up with this idea and uh, what does it really do compared to current law? Okay, so um, first of all, ideas are born from real-life situations, and that's how a lot of our laws are made. And I think, uh, before I get into that part of it, I'm going to go into a little bit of history about the safe haven law in the United States. And that actually began, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1999 when Texas introduced the first haven, first safe haven law in this country. And since then, similar legislation has been enacted in all 50 states, with Michigan joining in 2000. Since that time, over 3,300 babies have been safely surrendered nationwide under the safe haven law. And that happens when a mom in crisis will walk into a fire station or a police station or even a hospital and hands the child over with no questions asked. However, even with a circumstance like that, there have still been over 1,500 babies illegally dumped in our country at that same time frame. It just so happens that one of those babies who um, was uh, left abandoned um, is a grown woman who is an EMT. She lives in Indiana with her husband and family. And she was so moved by the story of a newborn baby girl that was found dead in the woods in Indianapolis in December of 2014 that she convinced her husband, who was the mayor of a small town, that they needed to do something to allow mothers in crisis to give up their infants anonymously. 
so that they wouldn't have to hand them to someone so they could have that extra assurance that they could give their baby safely in an anonymous place and that that baby would be safe. And she actually um, worked with uh, a designer, an architect. I'm not even sure who all she worked with to come up with a type of a device that can be installed in the wall of a facility such as a hospital or fire department that would allow the mom to come in and anonymously put her child in an area where the child is cradled in a warm environment um, and actually can, uh, it alerts the, the officials in the building. There's a 911 call that is immediately activated. The um, environment is all temperature controlled and the baby is safe for whoever answers the 911 call and responds within the first 20 minutes to a half an hour. The mother then is assured that she can give up her child, does not have to face anyone, and knows that the baby will be safe. And that's it in a nutshell. Um, the name of the young woman who, who started this is, is uh, Monica Kelsey, and she actually has a system for doing this, and that's where the Safe Haven Baby Box uh, name came from. And that's basically what our legislation, which is um, <clears throat> House Bill 5750 and 5751, became known as well, newborn safety devices, but um, Safe Haven Baby Boxes. Well, now, these bills had to go through the legislative process. There were committee hearings. Uh, there was testimony. Uh, I was, believe they, they passed with strong bipartisan support, Republicans and Democrats, right? Yes, they did. And actually, <clears throat> amendments were added to make sure that everyone was comfortable with it. And in looking at the law, it's not hard to see where, where people... Um, the, the big one in House Bill 5750 basically allows the, uh, a newborn safety. It can be given, a child given up, can be handed to an emergency service provided or to a newborn safety device as provided in this chapter. Provisions were added that said um, <clears throat> within, <clears throat> me, within 180 days of making this a law, DHS has to come up with standards for these devices for how they would be implemented, and all, all the rules and regulations to make sure that every um, accommodation for the baby's safety is made. And one thing I failed to neglect in my earlier statement about what is available when that mom places her child in this, in this device is that there is also information in there, um, and information that she can actually take a form with her and send it in later if she chooses about information about, um, you know, the baby's parentage. And there's also information that would help a young mom who was just given birth to um, direct her on, on symptoms to look for and maybe to clinics that she could go to and, and receive treatment. So it's kind of a two-way thing in that respect. Uh, I think um, in not understanding what this bill is about, it also requires a greater understanding of all the situations that uh, a new mom may be in. And I think in some circumstances, 
Uh, it's not uncommon for a young woman or even a teenager to hide a pregnancy and not tell anyone and, and to have people that you work with or go to school with or even your own parents not even be aware that you are pregnant. And oftentimes it is, it is those moms who are most at risk for leaving a baby in a bathroom on the floor or <clears throat> in a dumpster. And this would give um, a different alternative for that child and actually give that child a, a great chance at a new life and, and also comfort the mother to some extent, too, I believe. So it, had, it has a lot of, of good pieces in it. Yes, there's details. There always is uh, when you do anything. And this is such a new concept. I give a lot of credit to Monica Kelsey and her efforts to educate people about this. I don't think she would have been so inspired had she not been given up by a mother she, you know, that she has no knowledge of. Absolutely. Look, uh, we're going to be back with Representative Dare Rendon in uh, just a, a minute or so. We got to take a short break. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with Representative Dare Rendon, Republican of Lake City, representing the 103rd House District. She was the sponsor, along with her colleague, Brana Colley, who is from Lenaway County, Adrian, um, of legislation uh, to provide a, a safe haven uh, security uh, box device. You can call it a baby box uh, legislation that went to the governor of uh, Rick Snyder. Uh, in December for his signature, but amazingly, he vetoed it. And I guess my first question to Representative Rendon uh, in this segment is, uh, did you have interaction with the governor's office leading up to the final passage of this bill? And uh, were you uh, somewhat surprised, if not taken aback, by his veto and his veto message when it actually happened? Okay, so as you may be aware, maybe not, this all can be by the fact that you, um, the governor made this statement in the last week or two, this was all done through lame duck. <clears throat> and at the time, we were doing a lot of work, a lot of legislation. We voted on a lot of bills, as you're aware. And up until that time, we had not had any contact with the governor's office, and both Representative Colley and myself I don't believe thought that this was an issue that the governor would not support. I think we were both shocked and as well as disappointed when he didn't. We assumed, and maybe incorrectly, that there would not be a reservation about providing yet one more option for a baby to be safely handed over to officials by a parent who could not and did not want that child in her life. And so it was a shock um, and, and a big disappointment in in looking at the governor's words upon his veto of it, he, his reasoning was that the child should be safely delivered into human hands, more or less. And I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I think that's how any child should be done. But unfortunately, that's not a choice that a lot of moms, um, that some moms make. 
some moms are in such desperate straits that they can't make that decision. They don't want to face another human being. And thereby, when they do release the child, sometimes it is in circumstances that are less than desirable and, in fact, dangerous to that infant. And that was the whole reasoning behind these safety boxes, to give one more option to keep um, a child, a new life, safe from, from harm, while the mom, who has decided she definitely does not want that child in her life at that time, can safely hand it over and, and walk away. Yes, you know, I really was astounded by the governor's veto message. It seemed to fly in the face of the very logic and reason why this legislation was introduced and passed in the first place. I mean, look, it's not as though this is an absolutely novel idea. The idea of a mother, a new mother, who is embarrassed and or shamed or in desperate circumstances for some reason, not wanting to face another human being uh, at the moment she has decided, I've got to give up this child. I mean, you could go back to the fifth century. I mean, we're talking 1400 years ago to France where they had marble basins in churches where mothers could bring infants and leave them. You had doors in the sides of convents uh, in the 12th century uh, where mothers could leave uh, infants that they wanted to give up without having anybody know who they were. Uh, In Czechoslovakia, in Prague, they started a program a couple of years ago, which I think has saved 3,000 babies, they estimate, in the last couple of years uh, for baby boxes. And, you know, for the governor to say, well, you know, it would be a lot nicer if we uh, were able to just uh, put this new baby into human hands. Well, I mean, sure. Obviously, everybody agrees with that. You agree with that. But that's that's just not realistic in some cases. It isn't realistic. And the alternative in in those cases is tragedy. It's a disaster. Uh, You know, the baby gets thrown in a dumpster. Uh, is killed is, you know, dies from exposure or whatever. So I, I mean, I'm just dumbfounded, uh, as to how and why the governor could reach this conclusion. Well, I, it, it's a done deal at this point. Um, well, what, what about coming back under a lot of pressure? <laughs> yeah, he probably, well, I, who's he? Well, let me ask you, he's under a lot of pressure from who? I mean, look, you had <laughs> to, you went through some amendments in the house and Senate to answer mm-hmm. some of the questions that the governor might have had. Uh, tell me about those. Okay, so one of the first things we had to do was we had to define a newborn. Um, and since oftentimes a baby that um, is abandoned, if the mother's handing it over, she's going to hand over some certain facts. Well, if you're leaving a baby anonymously, that you might not, you wouldn't have access to those facts. You I mean, sometimes you can tell if the baby's just been born, if there's an umbilical cord attached, but sometimes not. And so we had to um, modify that definition and say up to 30 days old because, as you know, a premature baby is a lot smaller than um, a full-term baby. So there's, you know, there's a lot of variables there. One of the things that we had to do on, the, on my bill, which was 5751, is we had to insert a warranty in there that if 
there was any harm caused to the infant after being placed in that device, including death, it would go back on the manufacturer, and there would be no liability by the institution. Okay. Let, let okay. me. Let, let me. Yeah. Go ahead. You want? Yeah. Well, that that kind of makes sense um, because uh, you know we wouldn't want to make to make sure that something had already happened to that child before it was placed there. In order to receive the newborn using one of these devices, then another clause we put in was that the emergency service provider must have 24 hours, seven days a week, emergency responder staff, or must be a hospital. So basically, um, we narrowed the um, availability of these devices to uh, you know to certain circumstances. It have to be like a fire department, which is always manned, um, a police department, or a hospital. There's, there's somebody there 24-7. And an infant placed in one of these devices, as I said, does sound an alarm, a 911 call, so that someone can come and respond. And within 24 hours, that child is placed um, under the auspices of DHS and, and placed with a foster care family or a potential adoptive parent even. Okay, we've just got a couple of minutes left. Believe it or not, we can talk about this forever. But but I, I want to ask you, I mean, here you are, a new session of the legislature. Uh, you're in your second term, so is Bronick mm-hmm. Colley. Uh, the 100th Michigan legislature, 100. Um, you are starting afresh. Uh, all legislation has to be reintroduced that died on December 31st or was vetoed. Uh, what about the possibility of reintroducing this? And now you've got a female governor who, by the way, is a mother. Uh, do you think you might get a more receptive uh, uh, you know, reaction from the new Democratic uh, governor, female Gretchen Whitmer, than from Rick Snyder? And are you going to give this another shot? Uh, after all, it passed both chambers with bipartisan support in the last legislature. You've got many of those members back again. Hard to see anybody opposing this. Send it, send it to Whitmer see what happens. I, I think you're onto something, Bill. Um, this is something that was totally bipartisan and is appealing to everyone who's even been a parent. Um, we have just as many males as females on, on this legislation, so it is important, and it is something that we feel very strongly about. So, yes, I think there are plans in the works to reintroduce this, and we may have even more co-sponsors in this upcoming 100th legislation. And I, I believe that Governor Whitmer would be very receptive to this type of legislation, as it is bipartisan, and that's what it should be, legislation that works for everyone. Right. Uh, do you Did you get any other bills passed that you actually got Governor Snyder to sign <laughs> last year? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I had, I had plenty of those. I, you know, I did some work on the adult foster care um, rules and regulations and co-sponsored some bills with Representative Frank Liberati, again, bipartisan. I also did uh, a package of bills um, that the governor signed to do with um, registered, forest, or reg- registered foresters. So to man- manage and maintain our forest here in Michigan, um, because it's such a big industry here in northern Michigan, particularly, 
we want to make sure that people who are looking at um, good forest management use people who have um, education and background and can give them good advice about the types of um, trees they have and when they get ready to do some harvesting about what types of practices they should use. Very impressive uh, record of accomplishment in just a single two-year term you have under your belt. Now you're beginning your second term. You've got very exciting days and months ahead of you. Um, maybe also with a reiteration of the baby box legislation. I want to thank you, Representative Dare Rendon, Republican of Lake City, 103rd State House District. You did an outstanding job of explaining what this legislation was all about. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Bill.